Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. People over the age of 65, their incomes were increasing. And of course, the irony is that they don't, and it's not with any disrespect, they don't earn incomes for the most part, while younger Australian incomes were going down. So there's there's a whole series of things in terms of how people progress their lives, which is clearly structurally out of whack, and we must address it if we want to have what's an intergenerationally just society. Well, hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and in the studio with me is... Tim Wilson, yes. the troublesome member for Goldstone. <laughs> Let's see how troublesome over the next half an hour <laughs> or so. Anyway, Tim is with me because he's written a very interesting book, which it is out, isn't it, Love? Like it is got, out, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, it is in bookshops, so you can chase it down. It's called The Social Contract. The New Social the Contract, new social Renewing contract. Liberalism for Australia. Yeah. And look, I applaud Tim's endeavours in writing a book about liberalism. There is, I think, as he notes in the book, in his own book. There's not many books written about liberalism in Australia. There's there's all the sort of copious work of David Kemp. Yes. Um and of course there are others, but it's a bit of a it's a bit of a wasteland, the the writing about liberalism in I Australia. I wouldn't say it's a wasteland. I would say that there's a lot that's written earlier around the turn of the twentieth century, you had a lot of books written or contributions written by, you know, people like George Reed. And then of course you, the main sort of distillation of ideas sort of came through Sir Robert Menzies and some of his writing in the middle part of the twentieth century. But then most of it's sort of kind of sp- policy or time specific. And then you have, there's this five volume collection by David Kemp. But there's a reason why a lot of liberals always hark back to Menzies. And it's not a romanticism. It's because that was kind of the last time there was a real codification Mm. about what liberalism, what what Australian liberalism was. And so uh, what I want to do was not just to kind of update that I'm not trying to project, you know, that I'm updating Menzies, but to reflect on what does liberalism really kind of mean today? Yes, exactly. Um, and also the distinction between that and kind of conservatism. No, exactly, which which we will get into and all that's pretty interesting, right? So let's just start with the easiest question. What is Australian liberalism in 2020? Well, it, it's, it's, a, it's a political ideology and tension between the freedom of the individual and the empowerment of the individual. But ultimately, it's a political idea anchored in individuals and their capacity to be able to go and live out their life, their opportunity, enterprise, and all of the social and political organisation structures to empower people to be able to do so. But 
What I really focus on in the book is that we've kind of come out of this period of what I call the era of equity extraction, which most people would refer to as neoliberalism, sort of from the end of the Cold War through to about probably the global financial crisis. And in Australia, you'd have to say it kept going for a little bit longer. Mm. And that we really focused on the freedom of the individual. And what I'm saying is that for liberalism to be successful, they can't just sit on the pillars of freedom. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big freedom guy. I was dubbed the you, freedom exactly. commissioner. You are the freedom guy, remember? <laughs> uh, no, no, absolutely, and I am. But that doesn't change the fact that liberalism is a, a kind of concert of ideals around the freedom of people to live out their lives, having a sense of justice in society and the necessary trade-off with freedom, which is around responsibility. So it's really saying... What does that mean in contemporary society and making sure that we can conserve all of those kind of instruments playing in a band? Mm. Okay. Well, and then perhaps it might be instructive to reflect on Australian liberalism versus some very obvious alternatives in centre-right politics in the world at the moment. Obviously, we have the the wrong, I'll I'll say, so you don't have to, and you may in fact have a different view, the Rolling Freak show of... uh, of American politics and and, <laughs> I and don't think that would be dissimilar to well, my <laughs> no, no, I don't think it, uh, I, I don't Tim, but I'm just I'm avoiding you the diplomatic no, no, uh, no. Uh, uh, difficulties well, of saying the freak show right so we've got the freak show in America but then we also have Boris Johnson in the UK so again with how what is Australian liberalism compared, compared to, to yeah these yeah well what I I sort of argue is that liberalism in different countries comes from their traditions. You had the sort of philosophical ideal of classical liberalism at the end of the 19th century, but then in America it went off into a certain direction based on the issues of or the legacy of slavery and issues around identity politics, um, obviously particularly in contemporary American society and also around the the challenges they have around uh, freedom of enterprise and the need to trade that off with the social safety net or where they really haven't found that accommodation because they believe so much in freedom without so much an understanding around what's an, for want of a better phrase, an equitable or just society. And I like to use the word just. Whereas in the UK, the liberals essentially merged with the social democrats. So you had liberals and social democrats. And that was off the back of, of course, the issues they had around a a hereditary system of class and therefore what they were trying to do to achieve a more just society there. Whereas Looking at Australian liberalism, it's always sort of seen, and, and I, I fully appreciate and I'm aware of the, the cost this has borne Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander Australians, but Australian liberals, because of the nature of the, the foundation of the modern country, has worked with a much blanker slate, and it's been about a classless society. And this was the point I think that uh, Menzies really touched on, which is a liberal progressivism, which understands that we should have a classless society, that it's built on that sense of individual empowerment. And while it isn't solely down to property ownership, that's a critical part of it. It's about people owning their own homes, so they have an investment in society, they want to conserve it and preserve it for future generations. And that kind of nucleus of the individual and the organic institution of the family is the foundation of the success of not just people as individuals, but the whole of the country. So we're fighting a different kind of, or we have been fighting a different kind of battle in what we want to pursue. We're not fighting legacies of things in the past that we inherited. We had that opportunity to be able to create a kind of new society. What about, uh, because obviously libertarianism is quite 
a strain in centre-right politics in America um, and is visible on the margins of Australian politics as well and is part of the Liberal Party's philosophy. There are some There's absolute strains there. And and I share, by the way, some strains. Yes, I'm I'm aware of that. But but it's sort of interesting in this book the extent to which what you're championing is that you call it justice, right, in terms of the leavening in society to make things fair yes. is very much the fore in this book in terms of yeah. your arguments. That's, that's in fact, key to the social yes. contract. It's not like that there is no social contract. There is a social contract and, it, and it's quite specific what it is, right? But anyway, sorry, that's me raving. Libertarianism in the States, why, why is that? Why is that such a thing? Is it is it because it's a right based society because of their constitution? I I just sort of look at it with a certain amount of amazement. Not that I think that libertarianism is idiotic, because in some respects I I would I would yeah. I would share some of those philosophies, but it's just mad. Well, there's even within every political ideology has a diversity of perspectives in it. And of course, Australian liberalism has libertarianism as well. But when you look at American, it's it's such a rigid part of their political culture. But it's also ultimately comes down to a deep questioning around authority and centralized power, which any liberal has and should have. And frankly, I think a lot of other political ideologies should have too. So uh, I think it's that, but it's obviously just comes from also from the legacy of the foundation of their modern nation, particularly against the British. And of course, you know, you, you still see it. I love that reference in The Simpsons where why did Homer Simpson in one episode need to own a gun? It was because, you know, if the King of England came today and tried to push me around, I'd have to have the opportunity to push back. And that's that's where it comes from. It comes from the, the founding of the modern nation. Obviously, the expression of that is the Declaration of Independence, their constitution, their Bill of Rights. Yeah. And so it just remains as a core thread because they value that sense of individuality and almost island-like status for every individual against a tempered, which is what we have, a much Mm. more tempered understanding about how do you have a cohesive society. Well, exactly, and it's sort of at the expense of a social contract. But anyway, that's by At the expense of the social contract. Well, no, that's not true. They actually have a social contract. It's just a very different one because it's so anchored in the individual and that it doesn't automatically blend here. And of course, one of the reasons, again, why I wrote the book and going back to the point I made at the start around what's been written about the different political traditions in Australia is that because not a lot had been written, we borrow. Mm. And Australia borrows from both the UK and the US. Oh, yeah, well, we import all kinds of debates. Exactly. From and, least, so, yeah. and so if other people aren't putting out an alternative vision about where Australian liberalism should go, they'll look to what they like of elsewhere that often doesn't reflect our circumstance. And the point of this book, it's not a, a leadish a vision book. Yeah. It's a trying to guide a discussion book. Well, it's in a way, it's, it's an offensive strategy against importing versions of liberalism that don't work in the Australian context. Basically, yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's... uh, I'm glad you got that out of it. (laughs) Well, it's what it reads like. I'm interested too about conservatism because obviously if we think about debates within the lifespan of this government, same-sex marriage, Mm -hmm. climate change, the sort of takeaway, I'm talking about people who are politically disengaged, people who just look up every five minutes and, oh, there's the government and then head about their lives, right? It would be reasonable, I think, for a disengaged political person to look at the government and think that the sort of dominant centre of power in both the Abbott, Turnbull 
and now Morrison governments is a, is a strain of conservatism because of how difficult those issues were to navigate, right? Mm-hmm. But you're presenting conservatism in this book respectfully as, as a dry gully. So talk me through that. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the book got a comment from um, the Prime Minister which said it prods and stirs, which is his polite way of <laughs> I saying I may, I may not <laughs> Shut agree. Up. Shut up, Tim. Well, my, <laughs> no, it Sorry. wasn't that. I mean, he, he lent his name to it consciously. But essentially my point is that when it comes to the future of the country, and this is very much what Menzies again expressed, and it sounds like I'm going back to it because I think it's so important for people to understand this isn't something that I've exclusively developed myself, which is essentially you have a tr- progress cannot be stopped and nor should it be stopped. It should be tempered though, but you have different choices about the direction in which you go. And essentially I compare it to a car. You get into a car and you can turn broadly and these are very binary, that's much more complex, and I do Mm. understand that, between turning left and it's a social democratic future or broadly right and a liberal democratic future. And progressivism is about the speed at which you get there. And so if you're progressive, you you obviously slam your foot on the accelerator, and if you want to go conservative, you, you put the brake straight on. But, of course, if you don't, people, if you just put your foot on the brake, you're not going anywhere and other people will overtake you and I, you're ultimately dragged away because you'll be a blockage to progress happening. Mm. And so part of the social democratic political tradition is that to find that balance between progressivism and conservatism, and I think that's Labor's biggest problem, whereas the Greens, by comparison, are full foot throttle progressive, but that means that eventually they'll crash and hit hit a tree because they won't be able to adjust. Our task is the same towards a liberal democratic future. And yes, there have been people who are, who are conservative and tempered by the speed at which they want to advance change to respect institutions and the society and to take everybody with us. Mm. And, or, um, or indulge prejudices, let's be honest. Well, 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 there are people who obviously have a different worldview to me and perhaps to you who don't want to move at the speed that, uh, or to uh, uh, drive reform at the same pace. But that's not just on economics, or sorry, on social policy or cultural issues, it's on economics. The same issues come out in areas like industrial relations because people want to protect the family unit and a lot of people were very opposed to change on the, the right of politics because of their you know, belief that Sunday was a day for church not for and family, not for um, going and shopping. So... This is a constant tension, and it's it's a good tension because some people would like to go perhaps faster down than, that route. Well, faster than they can take other people with them, because it's ultimately about what's sustainable. You can't have a social contract of a and a society where people don't feel that they're heard or respected, or if they do, they'll then ultimately want to change the existing order. No, no, I, I totally agree, and I'm I'm reassured constantly, strangely, in politics that deliberation isn't dead, right, that, that competing interests continue yeah. to be balanced rather than everything being so polarised that the conversation doesn't happen anymore, right? Yeah. It is, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a negative in political movements no. that, that you guys have an internal discussion about this and Labor does as well. Your parties of government, you should have these discussions. However, however, you, in this book, your red flag on conservatism is, is partly generational. You're, yes. you're suggesting that if, the, if Australian liberalism presents to voters – 
as just simply being a bunch of fuddy-duddies. I mean, you're much more polite than me, but, you know, take it as read. Well, no, not all, not all that, the people who are conservative are old. No, sure. Well, well, no, well that's, well, yes, that's <laughs> an important correction. Thank you. But or young fuddy-duddies, right? But you're not going to base it. You basically will become stranded generationally yourselves as a political yes. movement if you cannot speak to millennials, to young people, even to Generation X, right? It's like that that's a, a risk, you see. So tell me about that. Let's well, flesh that out slightly. Sure. Well, I mean, I basically see most people and their approach to politics based on their life stage. Now, of course, everyone has complex reasons, value systems, what happened in their family, other inspirations. But most people broadly move, and particularly in Australia, between an opportunity and a security stage of life. So when you're young, you want to be able to you know, get a good education, good job, have a family, buy a home, etc. But of course, as you age, you become much more concerned about security, what you have and protecting it as you move into a more vulnerable stage of life, um, and including around health and aged care as you get particularly old. And my point and my concern is that we have the largest voting demographic in Australia today is 18 to 35 mm. by age. Mm. You can cut demographics in lots of different ways, but I think there is a, a no, common well, well, thread that's there. A, that's a standard cut of a of demographic yeah. is 18 to 35. Yeah, so, and it's yeah. A, a, but there's a common sort of broad interest there. And the second largest group is baby boomers. Now, lots of people have written about this, but what I try and point to is that they actually have generationally quite different objectives. Mm. And I particularly talk about in the context of home ownership, but it isn't just limited to that. And that what you have then is one side of politics racing towards trying to advance the interests of younger Australians. And this is not just here, it's also in the UK, it's also in the US, where they don't feel they're able to advance their lives yeah. and they don't have an investment in the status quo. And you've got people rigidly holding on to what they have and for very legitimate reasons. And you know, that came out in the last election. I was, you know, one of the chief people involved mm. in that discussion mm. around the retiree tax. And so what I'm saying is that, you can't have a that united wasn't a tax, but anyway, let's well, not, we will we can have a debate get, about that. Yeah, but you, you can't can. have a cohesive society and I believe very strongly in a cohesive society where we're picking one side against the other. You've actually got to have a, a social contract that covers both so that both can realise their own aspirations for their present and their future. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm saying if we don't address the issues that are facing younger Australians and economic opportunity, jobs, and this book was written predominantly before COVID-19, but now, of course, it's brought straight to the fore mm. because of the youth unemployment as a consequence of COVID-19. If we don't realise that ambition as well as younger Australians' basic expectations to own their own home, then you're going to have a very divided society that will ultimately make younger Australians... And this is what's happened in the US, particularly post the GFC. We never really had that experience. And the UK is you actually have people who want to overturn the status quo because mm. they don't see advantage in it. Yeah, exactly. Or don't see themselves living their lives through it. No, quite. And, you know, this is the stuff that, you know, from which revolutions are born. But well, I call uh, it a soft revolution through the ballot box rather yeah. than well, bunning, pitchforks well, at Bunnings, well, but yes. Well, let's, let's hope so. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and again, your argument is that you, you can't pick one, you can't sort of sort the country into demographics, pitch to one and ignore the other, that yes. you've got to come up with some sort of middle ground again, which is, you know, eminently sensible because parties of government do have to govern for everyone. But at one point in the book, you say consumption taxes yep. is is a way of splitting the, the, the dividing the interest, or well, yep. sorry, not dividing the interests of the demographics in the sense that if you put up consumption taxes, 
then everybody's in the same regime. Nobody's more favourably treated than somebody else, etc. Right? Okay, that's that's a fine thought. Let's kick it around though for a minute. The problem with raising consumption taxes though is that that's highly regressive. You know, young people obviously suffer more from a an increase in consumption taxes than older people. I guess, and you do say in the book too that you need to look at concessions as well at the, at the, yeah. at, the, at, yeah. the, at the boomer end, as it were. So you haven't got a you know binary or a simplistic position in the book. But I'm just saying surely the problem is at the concessional end, isn't it? Like the the, the problem no. that we've – well, talk to me about that. <laughs> no, it, it, it's across the board because it goes to the very heart of what we spend – money on. So one of the reasons uh, we already have regressive taxations that unfairly penalise young Australians. We draw so much of the revenue of the country from income tax. Mm. And of course, the main thing, and the, this, there's been a, quite a number of studies that looked at this, of course, once people basically hit the point around 60, 65, they stop paying income tax, mm. not because they see, cease to work. And so we're already imposing massive um, uh, regressive taxes on younger Australians in the income stage Earning income earning stage of their life. Yeah. So are concessions part of it? Yes, but concessions are there because of the complexity of the tax system. So the point around consumption taxes is that they're generationally equitable because people incur them at all stages of life. Yeah, but the, people's capacity to deal with them are, are different at all stages of life, which is the point about regressive re- regressivity, if that's even a word. Sure. No, and I understand that, and that's um, and this is where uh, obviously younger Australians consume less, but and older Australians, um, as a share of their overall wealth or their overall income, consume substantially more. So, you've got to find a balance between them all. But what I don't think we should be having is a tax system which basically puts the massive burden of younger Australians exactly when they're trying to save for a house, support their family, and which ultimately entrenches. And this is my point: is there's the the gap between the different tax rates, because of course the GST is one example is only 10%, whereas mm-hmm. the maximum income tax rate is up around nearly 50%. I mean, that's a huge distortion around what burdens people are carrying, but it's also then where the money gets spent. And uh, and lots of research has been done into this from the intergenerational reports to the, what's being done by the Grattan Institute, that the primary areas of growth of public expenditure are on the ageing population. Yeah particularly um, healthcare at the most expensive stage of life because you're mari- managing multiple conditions. And of course, that leads to the pharmaceutical benefits scheme as mm-hmm. well as aged care, as well as the pension. So it's not just a discussion about what you're paying. It's also a discussion about responsibility. And that's where I think we've also got a big whack in balance. It's not just on who's paying tax, but it's what people are getting in return. Sure. But then, okay, let's let's think about home ownership and superannuation sure. uh, because both of them are quite important in the book. Uh, yep. Why I'm confused, perhaps you can enlighten me. You champion home ownership basically as the foundation stone. That's the buy-in, right? If you talk yep. about the social contract. If everyone, in Australia, yeah. In Australia, yeah. Like So if everyone owns a home, they're, they're property owners, they have a, they have a vested interest in, in a functional society that is broadly, you would say, founded on justice, I would say equity. Sure. Whatever. Anyway, so that that's your point of entry and you, and you make the point obviously quite strongly that, uh, as you did just a second ago, that young people are being – the pol- policy is inequitable for young people at the point at which they're trying to get a foundation in, in terms of property ownership and everything else. They're whacked every which way. Yep. And that superannuation in, in your narrative is, is another whack rather than 
Well, it's, a, it's, 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 an, it's an incoherent prioritisation well, because if you're 20 today, you're compelled to save 10% of your income yep. towards something, an event that will occur in 50 years. Now, there'll be a compound benefit from saving from then till, to 50 years, but what we know is the biggest issue that young or that any Australian faces in retirement is around whether they own a home or not. Yeah, if they don't, sure. they're going to be worse off. No, no, of course. Regardless mm. of their super balance. And so all I'm saying, and, and you know, I, I don't go to the specific of this is precisely how you should do it, but there needs to be a reprioritization to recognize that younger Australians should be able to buy their own home and that it's logical that they, their savings goes towards that before worrying about their retirement. That's fine, but I understand why home ownership in, your, view, yeah. in your narration of liberalism is is important and totemic, both as a thing in itself, it's it's a, it's a tangible asset and it ties people together in a community of yep. well, common interests, right? So I get it. You don't need to explain it to me. But what I don't get is why, look, I, I see it differently in the sense that home ownership is great, obviously important. I'm very grateful to own my own home and I'm worried about whether my kids will own yes. theirs, obviously, like any parent. But I see like... Uh, home ownership and a decent superannuation balance, they're both assets. They both sustain you in retirement. They're both positive. They both reduce, you know, the burden on the taxpayer of having to look after me in retirement. Mm-hmm. Why set these two things up in mortal combat with one another? I, 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 I remain mystified by this. Because um, if you own your own home at the age of 30, then you'll have at least 35 years, if not longer, of enjoying the compound benefit of home ownership. Whereas, of course, with your superannuation balance, you won't be able to even access it. So ultimately, you have a prioritisation. It's not against super. It's a recognition of the prioritised benefit because, of course, you don't just access your, your, your home ownership in your retirement. And that's why I think the prioritisation is out of whack. Now, this book isn't about Super, that's Andrew Baggs about yes. corporate no, 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 But, but no, no. it's a simple acknowledgement. There are lots of factors that are contributing to younger Australians not being able to own their own home and, of course, compelling them to save something uh, for something they're going to access in, in some cases, up to 50 years is obviously a part of that. Um, I make the argument around how we structure the tax system is a big de- uh, has a really negative impact on home ownership for young Australians. And, of course, the interest that older Australians have in conserving their wealth is part of that. So recognising and rebalancing around that is part of what planning does. But we shouldn't just be trying to prioritise younger Australians buying houses in an inflated market we also really have to focus on getting the price of housing down. And that's also driven by tax policy, mostly at a state level. And so that's why we're having discussions around shifting from stamp duties to land taxes, et cetera. No, no, sure. But but then again, you've got a proposition and I and again I acknowledged a second ago what home ownership means in philosophical terms as mm. well as practical terms I'm I'm paying your argument in that sense right I understand sure. why it's important in in putting together a, a coherent set of philosophies that bind humans together which I'm really quite interested in Good. <laughs> but riddle me this home ownership more important than superannuation because reasons you've outlined although I I acknowledge you Unlike Bragg, and not you know, we're, we're not having that kind of super as dire and must be burned to the ground argument. He's not would, arguing that just for clarity well, either. He kind but. of is, but anyway, that's all right. I'll have that argument with him separately. I won't. <laughs> oh, you're not his spokesman. That's fine. <laughs> so, at one level, home ownership very important. We've got to reduce the price of housing in order mm-hmm. to get more young people into the market. Mm-hmm. You're talking about reducing the value of people's assets, right? 
like in your great property owning society, yep. society, right? You're talking about reducing the value of people's assets, but that's quite important, but and more important than super. It's sort of like I I cannot follow this. I cannot follow this logic. I just can't. And it's not because I, uh, you know, I think super's fantastic, and I wish I had more super than owning a house. I think everyone's got to have a bit of everything, right? Yeah. But it's kind of like. I'm not fully on board with the with the logic here. In the end, one of the things, one of my key points is people are paying too much for housing. Housing in Australia is overvalued. And we, meaning the governments, and I mean state and federal, collectively make it so. And so the consequence of a natural transition, I'm not arguing for policy to be one way today and then to be radically different in people. And I own my own home and it goes from a value of you know, probably 900,000 down to 450,000 or anything like that. It's got to be a graduation, but there's got to be acknowledgement that, and and I guess in one sense, the pandemic provides this opportunity, is probably a stabilisation of house prices to allow incomes to catch up. And that's why I'm particularly concerned about youth unemployment is because actually it'll make it harder for to, mm. uh, for to do so. Very much. So, mm. But the key thing is we don't expect people for the most part in retirement to access the value of their home. So it's, and this is the con- real concern, one of the many real concerns I have from the book is if, you, if you're a property owner, you own your own home, and of course you then pass it on to future generations, they're already at a significant advantage mm, to so. people who don't. And that this effect is now compounding. And because we keep preferencing the price of housing, we're reinforcing that trend, essentially creating a property-owning class for which you're either a member of or you really have no opportunity to get into. And that's a break of Australia's social contract to me. Yeah, yeah. And we've got to address it. I don't disagree with that at all. So is it going to create, and this is why I try and deal with it in a a book in a considered way, not just through op-eds, which would no doubt get headlines, is to say we've got to fundamentally address what is a structural imbalance now in our society. And that's why I don't just go down the super path of saying, mm. you know. No, 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 you don't. In fairness, is, it, for, for listeners, just to be clear, it's not, it, these arguments are quite nuanced in this book. Yeah. I, I would encourage you to go and look at them, but I'm just teasing. I'm, I'm, no, it's fine. I'm it's, taking Tim's brain around <laughs> the park several times to try and unpack the logic behind some of the arguments. Yes, and, and that's 100% logical thing to do, which is we've got to progressively slow the increase in price in housing because we've seen the gap between the income to, to price ratio for housing where uh, it used to be you had to earn roughly four times your income to be able to afford to buy your own home. In some parts of Australia, it's now 11, nearing 12 in Sydney, but in lots of parts of the country, it's certainly around the, the seven, eight to nine times. Mm. And so it means we're compounding the problems. Yeah. Here. Yeah, and no, we no, saw no, this absolutely. in the, the Productivity mm. Commission data recently on youth wages, and it showed that people over the age of 65, their incomes were increasing. And, of course, the irony is that they don't, and it's not with any disrespect, they don't earn incomes for the most part, while younger Australian incomes were going down. So there's there's a whole series of things in terms of how people progress their lives which is clearly structurally out of whack and we must address it if we want to have what's an intergenerationally just society where, because and this is where I go, one of the core things I write, which is quite challenging for a lot of li- even liberals, is that a condition of a liberal society is equal opportunity. Liberals were very much ones used to champion that. But that equality of opportunity isn't just a snapshot in time around education. You can't create structural barriers which create a class society, which is precisely what Sir Robert Menzies used to argue against. That was what a progressive liberalism was. It forced a class-based society, and that's why he 
specifically said he wasn't a conservative and he really did, and I go through quoting him quite extensively what he means mm. at a level which probably frustrates some of my <laughs> colleagues using his own words yeah. about what, what he meant when he said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, and that, 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 all that analysis is in there. Just one more thing because we're running out of time. There's quite a lot in this book. You know, I genuinely encourage you if you're a person who is interested in politics, who's interested in ideas, who is interested in a functional two-party system in Australia, go and have a look at the book. It's worth your time. One more thing, you also talk about the importance in the Liberal tradition in Australia of of decentralisation. Yes. The Liberal Party has been a party of state rights. I I don't say it that strongly, but yes. No, well, I'm saying it. That is your history. You you are a party of state rights. That That is your history. Now, I mean, people can be... You know, for that or against it or whatever. That's that's. I'm just talking about your tradition. We are in a, a period of incredible centralisation yes. of power. In because we've it's one of the it's one of the sort of you know loss of faith in globalisation, rise of the nation currents that we see. We see this kind of centralisation of power in nations because nation states are once again asserting themselves and have been in terms of the pandemic response. Anyway, that's another whole conversation. But we've seen the Prime Minister stand up and say uh, he wants uh, to seek the powers of the Commonwealth to unilaterally terminate state agreements with foreign powers. Now, obviously, the Commonwealth has scope to do that under the external affairs power, right? But holy God, that is quite something for a Liberal Prime Minister to be standing up there advocating unilateral curbing of the power of the states to enter into agreements in good faith. What do you think about that? Is I'll actually completely disagree with you because it's 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 a natural thing that a federal government should do is our relationship to other countries. And so I, I'm completely supportive of that because I think what the states have done, particularly, uh, you know, the, the overwhelming number of agreements struck between states and other countries are, to the extent they happen, they don't happen that often, are constructive interests around trade and whatnot. But this is where national security and national interest is being traded off where Victoria is signing a deal with the Chinese Communist Party. And that relationship ultimately is because of its effect on the Pacific, Southeast Asia, that is our natural domain. I do recognise you can point out that argument, but I don't think it's one that that trumps it. I think we have to recognise that we can get in a long discussion about the CCP, its role, its objectives and everything else. But that relationship is not just one that's codified in the constitution, but it's the one that we as an elected government are elected to manage. And if there was a change of government, they would as well. So I don't quite agree. My bigger concern is the degree which everybody now sees that if you want an issue to be taken for one of a better phrase, seriously, send it to Canberra. Actually, that is the worst thing you can do. And one of the things we've almost had is that a hollowing out in the equity in, in state parliaments particularly around tax, and I don't mean, you know, it sounds like I'm obsessed with tax, not, but it's it's uh, where they don't raise the revenue, they just spend it, and the trade-off, from, and we raise the revenue have to hand it, it means that in, in the end nobody's taking responsibility. Now, I use the example of a shower, which is, you know, you're standing in the shower and all of a sudden you get a rush of cold water, um, and, of course, if there's a tap there, you turn it straight off and there's a direct correlation between your power and your capacity to affect change. But, of course, the further up the food chain you go, the more distant the power and the less 
capacity, you have to fix it. And that's the problem that we have where we send things to Canberra. It means you're calling somebody further away to try and fix something where they have less relationship. It'll take longer and they'll have less local knowledge and understanding. And so the very basis of liberalism, and it actually goes back to the home as much as the individual, is that these are organic institutions and family and that things and that the idea of liberalism is that society is built from there up, not from Canberra or a capital down, and you can't design this perfect society, which is why sometimes liberals like me have this real challenge with Canberra as a concept, because it's not an organic institution by its its sort of nature. It's an artificial one we've created to manage something bigger. Well, except it is it is a builder of social capital, which is not a phrase you would own. Well, it's not a phrase you would champion or own, but is actually very important to your own view of liberalism. Without governments are governments need to get out of the way in your version of liberalism for sure individuals societies all need to flourish and function in your view, version of liberalism but government is not absent in your view no of no not at all, at it, all. this is not an, i'm no, i'm a long way from an anarchist <laughs> a long way from i really believe that there is a this is why i'm ultimately and people will argue with me and you know, i'm not a libertarian i never have been it's why i always draw a very clear distinction that i'm a liberal um, is that I don't think all knowledge rests in government further away from the source of a problem with less capacity to affect it. Um, but the deference is to those people in the immediate circumstances, which is why it's good to have community organisations and councils trying to affect change in the community because it's because they're much easier to hold to account and they have much better local knowledge and it escalates from there. Mm, yeah, anyway, uh, we could go on, as you can hear, but anyway, we <laughs> won't. We'll call it a day. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks th- for having me. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of this show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with you very, very soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.